These are God's words. Let's ask for God's help. Oh, Father, we thank you that you have drawn us near through your Son, that we might come before you and behold him. And I pray that this morning, Lord, that you would fill us with your Spirit to hear and to believe and to receive these words afresh, either for the first time or for the thousandth time, and that you would work in us and grant us spiritual sight, that we might today see Jesus as we stand at the foot of his cross. We ask that you would glorify yourself, that you would change us, that you would work in us, and that you would recenter us in our lives upon that cross. We ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hmm. This is it. These events, which took place approximately 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. on a Friday 2,000 years ago, are the very center of everything. The climax of the gospel of Mark that we've spent the past year walking through. The very center of human history. The very center of our lives. Mere hours which have altered the course of the world. Mere hours which have secured the eternal destinies of all God's people forever. Mere hours then that we must return to every day of our lives. Because in these mere hours, what is most glorious in God is revealed most clearly to be seen. What is most wrong with you and with, with me and in this world is addressed. These mere hours, they speak to everything in life that is not as it should be and say, see what God has done about it. Church, everything hinges upon these moments. So wherever you're at this moment, whatever's going on in your heart, whatever's happening in your life, you need to see what took place at the cross. You need to see it. We all need to see it. You need to behold the king who bore your sin this morning. That's it. It's that simple. What you most need is to behold the king who bore your sin. In the cross, we come to the most succinct answer to the question, who is Jesus and what has he done? He's the king who bore your sin. The one who in these very moments that we just read about upon the cross actually achieved the salvation from what our sins deserved by dying for them. Here now, we finally arrive at the cross in Mark and we gaze up and wonder as Jesus is saving us. This morning, you and I, we need to see this crucified king and center and perhaps re-center our lives upon his cross, doing so today and every day. And so, in the rest of our time together this morning, as Mark leads us to the foot of that cross, he has two main sites 
for us to see. Number one, behold the king mocked and crucified. Verses 16 through 32, behold the king mocked and crucified. And number two, behold the king who dies for traitors. Verses 33 through 41, behold the king who dies for traitors. And now, as we behold the king who bore our sin, first, we behold the king who is mocked and crucified. This section of the story, this first part here, it declares both intentionally on the part of Mark and unintentionally on the part of the mockers in the story that Jesus is king. And for those with the eyes of faith, we see the very truth about King Jesus that's bound up in all the taunts made against him. And so now, let's, let's enter in. And picking up where we left off last week in Mark chapter 15, we remember that at the conclusion of his Roman trial, Jesus, he was condemned to die by Pontius Pilate. And he was delivered over to be crucified. The living, breathing illustration of human sin, it continues now in our passage to be lived out before us as Jesus is handed over to Roman soldiers to be scourged in preparation for the cross. But as we pick up in our story today, It's not just any criminal that they're preparing. It's the so-called king of the Jews that they've received this day. These men do not miss the opportunity to take full advantage of this seeming irony in verses 16 through 21. That before them, a king stands in order to be conquered, to be shamed, and to be humiliatingly executed. And so they called together the whole battalion that morning around 8 a.m. Around 600 men gather together and they gave him the royal treatment. Verse 17 tells us that they dressed him with the garments of royalty, placing a cloak of, a cloak of purple on the blood red and bloodied back of Jesus, crowning him not with precious stones, but with thorns that pricked his head and spilled his precious blood. This tortured man, this Jesus of Nazareth, is parodied now as the king he claimed to be. And verses 18 through 19 tell us that this continues now as the mass of soldiers begin to, to, pay, to pay homage to him. They're saluting him, and they're crying out to him, Hail, the king of the Jews! <laughs> and as they do so, They do not understand that the man they hail is the one that everyone will one day confess as Lord. The king of kings is before them, and they consider him no king at all. But instead, they were striking him and spitting on him and facetiously kneeling down before the one then, before whom one day every knee will bow. And this continues on. And verse 20 tells us that when they'd had their fill of this God-hating fun, this sinful joy, they stripped off his royal robes. They took off that purple cloak, tearing the bloody flesh that would have adhered to that rich fabric freshly off his back. They dethroned the king that they were parroting, and they dressed him back in his commoner's clothes, and they led him out to embrace a criminal's cross. 
after mocking him so. Jesus now, he is ascending Calvary's hill. He's going now, having been prepared to die, to give his life as a ransom for many, as we've heard earlier in Mark. He's going now to seal every promise of the new covenant as he pours out his precious blood, to save his people from their sins by becoming sin for him. And so he's led to the cross. And as he continues on in verses 21 through 22, in silence, Jesus marches toward the cross. He's been silent now since he last spoke to Pilate and said, you say so. And he'll be silent until the end of the scene where he cries out to God in verse 34. And in silence, he goes like a lamb led to slaughter. But this moment all around him is anything but quiet. The crowds swarm around him as he marches down the road, out of the city and up the hill to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, very aptly named for a crucifixion to go down. And he's carrying the crossbeam that he'll soon be bound to, an object of shame and ridicule all along the way. Yet, his body has been brutalized already at this point. The blood is dripping from his face and his back, and he's been up all night, and he's been savagely beaten by the soldiers. The human body of Jesus has been pushed to its absolute limit. And so, so much so that the soldiers, they force, they conscript, they voluntell a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, to carry his cross for him. And Simon was a Passover pilgrim, a Jew who had come from out of town to be a part of the festival here. And evidently, he was also a father of two early Christians that Mark names in his text of Alexander and Rufus, who in that moment encountered Christ upon the road and no doubt was changed forever by it. So much so that his sons came to believe and came to love and came to serve that crucified king. And so Simon is enlisted for the task of carrying his cross. And here, in another living illustration, Simon's bearing the cross with Jesus It reinforces yet again for us, doesn't it? That Jesus has not come to bear his own cross, but ours. The cross that belonged to us. Man, again, is involved, is complicit, is responsible for the death of the Son of God. And Simon bears the cross with Jesus, though he will not bear it as Jesus at the top of the hill. It's a living illustration of Christ again coming to take our place. But not only that. Simon's literal carrying of the cross, it also serves for us as another living illustration, a living illustration of of discipleship, of what it means, what it looks like to follow after this Jesus as he literally carries the cross, that instrument of death up the hill, and he and Jesus are paraded down this shameful path. And in verse 23, As they arrive at the top of the hill, Jesus is offered wine mixed with myrrh. But Mark tells us that he did not take it. He does not take this drink. Prior to being nailed to the cross, he's offered this cup. But as Sovereign Grace Pastor Rick Gamash says, this is not the Father's cup. This cup is not the Father's cup. This cup is an ancient form of a painkiller that would serve to, you know, be a mild anesthetic 
for the one who was being crucified. It was actually a form of, of mercy from the Romans to the criminal being executed. But Jesus, he refuses this painkiller. He refuses this anesthetic. He's fully resolved, church, to drink that other cup, the Father's cup, fully conscious of all the pain, embracing every ounce of the wrath stored up toward sinners. And so with eyes wide open and a stone sober mind, Jesus, he confronts the horrors of the cross without anything whatsoever to numb the agony of his body and soul. Tasting the fullness of the curse of death for us. To the cross, he must now go. In verses 24 through 25, read that. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour, 9 a.m. that morning, when they crucified him. <laughs> and as we read this, I don't know if you, about you, but I get a little frustrated, don't you? <laughs> Mark describes this so matter-of-factly. We're walking with Jesus up the hill, and we get there, and they crucified him. Three Greek words. And he plainly describes in those short words, the central event in the history of all the universe. The Son of God is now on the cross, and Mark says, and they crucified him. <laughs> it was 9 a.m. that Friday morning, and they crucified him. And Mark, he doesn't offer us any details as to the process. He does not draw the reader's attention to the gore and the violence of this moment. And this could present difficulties for us as modern readers today who try to grasp at what's going on here. But believe me, it posed no problems to his first century audience, especially if the book of Mark was written to Christians who were in Rome of all places. They know exactly what's happening here. But we don't. And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around the fullness of this awful scene. To imagine the cross beams fitted together like a capital T upon the ground and the, that the victim laid upon them. Nails being pounded into the wrists and feet to secure them and affix them to this cross. The brain screaming out in pain as sensors and neurons and all those different responses are being fired through the body. Searing and burning. Then... With the victim nailed down upon it, the cross is lifted up from the earth. The vertical post planted in the ground like a flag flying to the, to the disgrace of the victim being shamed and presented there. Jesus is nailed and raised up, and we all now look up at him, hanging there upon the cross. And this scene is awful, but it is telling for us, isn't it, that Mark doesn't elaborate that much upon it. Yes, it's because his readers on one hand already knew, but even more than that, it's because he doesn't want us to miss that even though this physical suffering is terrible, the worst had yet to come. Mark actually, in this description, he downplays the physical in order to emphasize the depths of the grief that would come in the drinking of the Father's cup in just a few hours. 
And so Mark wants us to be focused on the right things. He wants us to see into the heart of what's happening in the cross. That's why he describes it like this. And so the story continues. The son of God is now on the cross and soldiers gamble over his belongings. A poker game breaks out at the foot of the cross, holding the son of God himself. This is just another day in the office. (laughs) In other words, for these Roman soldiers and these professional executioners, they crucify another criminal. They do this all the time. They cast lots over his clothes and they pass the time while another man slowly dies. But we know that this is not just any other man. We know this and soon one of these centurions himself will find out this is not just any other man. Mark, he notes this detail for us, that they were casting lots over his garments so that we wouldn't miss this reality. That this is not just another man, another criminal that history would soon forget, but the very man to whom history has pointed, that history has anticipated, that has been expected by God's people to come. One that was looked forward to hundreds of years before now in the 22nd Psalm, of David, the king. David, who wrote the words, speaking initially of his own suffering, but looking forward to one to come, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots, in Psalm 22, verse 18. Mark is showing us here through this allusion, through this connection, that the righteous sufferings of David back then pointed to the sufferings of the perfectly righteous one to come, Jesus, in the here and now. And Mark, in this text, in this chapter, he'll return to Psalm 22 again and again. Psalm 22 is all over this section, this passage. From the gambling over the sufferer's clothing to the encircling of his enemies, the mocking, the deriding, the head-wagging of the gathered crowd, to his physical distress, even up to the piercing of his hands and feet. That's all there in Psalm 22, all culminating in the opening cry of Psalm 22, verse 1, which Mark would record for us as Jesus' final words from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in this, our divinely inspired author, he's showing us that what was foreshadowed in King David has now found its fulfillment here in Jesus Christ. Here is the true king of Israel the righteous sufferer par excellence, experiencing a forsakenness that David could not hold a candle to. That's what's happening now in this moment. Mark is showing us that this man who's being mocked and crucified is none other other than the king. The king whose sufferings are not haphazard, they're not arbitrary, they're not purposeless, but are down to the minute detail. Even the casting of lots for his garments Fulfilling the very plans and purposes of God. That's what's happening here. Mark demonstrates that the righteous king to whom David pointed is here upon the cross. And the mockers surrounding Jesus, they actually come to declare it as well. They do so to shame him. But ironically, they speak truer than they know. For what comes next in verses 26 through 33, in the taunts of the mockers, those taunts actually turn out to be true. 
And so as the crowd beholds Jesus upon the cross, three different taunts are hurled at him, all of which we see with the eyes of faith to be amazingly true. Number one, in verses 26 through 27, Jesus is mocked as the king of the Jews. He's mocked as the king who has been mockingly now enthroned, as it were, upon a cross. He's numbered among the transgressors on his right and his left. Men like Barabbas, insurrectionists, bad guys, murderers, criminals. He's numbered among the transgressors. And according to his Roman executioners, written down on the inscription that's hanging above his head is his chief transgression, which is claiming to be the king. He's claiming to be the king, yet in this moment, Jesus appears to be anything but a king. He's naked, he's powerless and weak as he helplessly hangs upon a cross, and so they mock him as a king of nothing as he hangs there. Second, in verses 29 through 30, he's taunted as the one supposedly so powerful so as to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days with his own hands. They say to him, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, why don't you save yourself and come down from the cross? If he's powerful enough to do that, he should be powerful enough to come down from off that cross. And they mock him and they wag their heads and they look at him with disgust. Thirdly, in verses 31 through 32, he's mocked as the one who saved others, but cannot save himself. The chief priests say to the scribes as they they talk together, he saved himself, or excuse me, he saved others. And And Mark, mind you, he saved others, healing the incurable, exercising demons, even raising the dead. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him even, even those criminals also reviled him. In other words, they're saying, how can he be the Christ? That is God's appointed savior, God's appointed and anointed and awaited deliverer of his people. How can he be the Christ if he can't even save himself? How can he save others if he can't even remove himself from the cross? But if he were, that would prove to us that he is who he says he is, and we believe in him. (laughs) If he could save others, why doesn't he save himself? So they mock him. Everyone is mocking him in the crowd. And as we've heard in Mark, and as we've walked through these chapters, this is not a group of people who are particularly bad, (laughs) who are so unlike us. No, mind you again, we would find ourselves in the mix, in the crowd, looking up at Jesus, this would-be king, and saying, why would I trust in him? Why would I give up everything I have to follow him? Why would he be the one to whom I should bend the knee and confess and cry out, Lord? Look at him hanging there. The crowd, they they mock him just as we would, just as we did, just as we might now still be mocking him because their eyes are blinded by unbelief. But here is what we see in these same taunts through the eyes of faith. Number one, we see that Jesus, he's the king 
who's enthroned upon the cross in an exercise of his own royal prerogative. What do I mean? I mean that contrary to appearances, as Jesus, the king of the Jews, hangs there helpless, Jesus is actually by his own choice and volition and divine initiative, conquering every power arrayed against him through his death upon the cross and his kingdom, the kingdom of King Jesus, far from being erased, is actually in this moment being established. Paul tells us this, does he not, in Philippians chapter 2, that Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found now in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of this, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow just as they were facetiously doing then. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue, just as they did so ironically then, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here we see with the eyes of faith that he is the king of the Jews and the king of the universe hanging on the cross for us. Next, we see in the second taunt that Jesus, he is the true king of Israel who builds the temple just as it was promised in that Davidic covenant back in 2 Samuel 7 that a son of David would come and he would build the temple. Well, Jesus, he's come to do that and he's also, we know, the, the true temple himself. The temple um, that here and now on the cross, the temple of his body was being torn down in death in order to be raised up again on the third day, never to be destroyed again. In this way, Jesus in this moment, as they taunt him for being unable to build and to raise the temple, he's actually bringing an end to the old temple made by human hands as he offers up the perfect sacrifice, which will bring an end to all sacrifices. The the tearing of the veil that we read about in verse 38, it indicates just this reality, that he's bringing an end to that old temple and he's raising up a new one in his resurrection body, as he would be raised up never to die again, a new temple that could never be destroyed, to which all could come who would believe and draw near to God through faith in him. He is the true temple builder. He is the true temple. We see this in the cross. Finally, we see here in these taunts, a a king who has come to save God's people from their greatest enemies of sin and death and Satan, not by coming down from the cross, but by remaining upon it. And we can't miss this like the chief priest did. It's precisely because Jesus is the Christ that he does not come down from the cross. Listen, Jesus does not lack the power to save himself here in this moment. But he remains on the cross in order to save us. They say, (laughs) oh, if he'd save others, and he'd say, yes, here I am saving those others. In this moment, as the majesty of majesties is mocked as no king at all, he resolves to remain on the cross. 
And in this moment, as C.J. Mahaney says, what kept him there on the cross was what put him there on the cross. Meaning, it was not the nails through his hands and feet, nor the might of Rome bearing down upon him, or his inability to miraculously free himself. No, what kept him there was his resolve to glorify God by manifesting the wonders of his goodness and grace in the salvation of a people for himself forevermore. More pointedly, even, what kept him there in that moment was you. You, cross of grace, church. You, if you are a believer today, joining us. Christian, if you are a Christian, in that moment, he stayed on the cross for you to ransom and redeem and save you to the uttermost, laying down his life in love for you, securing your very salvation. He is the king who's come to save his people. Amen? Oh. And so in all this, the mockers, they're ironically very right, very true, though they don't know how true they speak. And through their taunts, we've beheld the king who's come to bear our sin. And now, we're brought to the very climax of his sin-bearing work. Our second point, behold the king who dies for traitors. And as we come to verse 33, Mark indicates through the indication of of the timing that it's now been three hours. He was crucified at 9 a.m. It's now noon. It's been three hours of shame, of mocking, and physical suffering for Jesus. But now, it's about to get worse. The king has not yet descended to the depths of his grief, but now he takes the plunge as a supernatural darkness covers the land. A solar eclipse in the middle of a springtime day. Darkness upon the earth to demonstrate that God's judgment from on high in heaven has now come. Something far more than physical suffering is here now. For the next three hours, Jesus would be drinking down the Father's cup of wrath toward sinners as the darkness fell upon him. He'd be drinking down the judgment reserved for us. And, oh man, the fullness of what's going on here and and how we can understand this and wrap our minds around it is beyond our ability to comprehend. We just know that the judgment of the holy God has descended upon in wonder of wonders, his holy son, and not the people who actually deserve it. Here is Jesus, and now God's judgment has come, what was meant for us, upon him. In this moment, Jesus has reached the lowest and the most awful point of his suffering and his humiliation. And for three hours now, think about this, in real time, we know what three hours is like, for the duration of a football game, or a really long movie, and every movie these days seems to be this long. <laughs> or even the length of our 9 a.m. to noon reservation at the Ebel Club on a Sunday morning, each and every week. 
for three hours. The righteous and just anger of God towards sinful men and women who would gaze upon his son and cry out like we heard last week, crucify him, get rid of him. We don't want him at all. And daily live our lives dethroning and displacing him as the king. This judgment, this wrath, this right response to our treason is poured out upon him. Jesus, he's dying now as a traitor to the king for us who are actual traitors to the king. He, in the words of Paul, who knew no sin, is now made to be sin for us. And it's impossible for us to really wrap our minds around the fullness of this and to grasp at the the full weight and gravity of what's happening here. But Sovereign Grace Pastor Rick Gamash, in his crucifixion narrative, The Father's Cup, he, he helps us to lay hold of as much as we can as we come to this juncture here. And I'm going to quote him at length, of Pastor Rick, um, and he's going to help us to understand as we read an excerpt from his narrative what it means that Jesus died for our sin, what it means that he bore our sins upon himself in the cross. And every sin that will be read off this list, which we're about to embark upon. Every sin is equally deserving of that cross. There is none better. There is none worse. They all merit the same judgment of God. And Jesus stepped in to bear them all. And so the point of this list is not to uh, beat yourself up, but it's to stand in awe and wonder at the Savior who would say, don't count this against them, but count it to me instead. He stepped in for every one of these sins and every type of sinner that we might know life with God. And so as he's now hanging on the cross for these things, let's keep our eyes fixed on him as Pastor Rick helps us and describes this moment. So listen to what he has to say. He says, Then, after hours on the cross, the darkness now descends upon him. And Jesus is startled by a foul odor. It isn't the stench of open wounds. It's something else. And it crawls inside of him. He looks up to his father. His father looks back. But Jesus doesn't recognize these eyes. They pierce the invisible world with fire. And they darken the visible sky. And Jesus feels dirty. He hangs between heaven and earth. Filthy with human discharge on the outside and now filthy with human wickedness on the inside. The father speaks, son of man, why have you sinned against me and heaped scorn on my great glory? You are self-sufficient and self-righteous, consumed with yourself and puffed up and selfishly ambitious. You rob me of my glory and worship what's inside of you instead of looking out to the one who created you. You are a greedy, lazy, gluttonous slanderer and gossip. You are a lying, conceited, ungrateful, cruel adulterer. You practice sexual immorality. You make pornography and you fill your mind with vulgarity. You exchange my truth for a lie and worship the creature instead of the creator. And so you are given up 
to your homosexual passions, dressing immodestly and lusting after what is forbidden. With all your heart, you love perverse pleasure. You hate your brother and murder him with the bullets of anger fired from your own heart. You kill babies for your convenience. You oppress the poor and you deal slaves and you ignore the needy ones. You persecute my people. You love money and prestige and honor. You put on a cloak of outward piety. But inside you are filled with dead men's bones, you hypocrite. You are lukewarm and easily enticed by the world. You covet and you can't have, so you murder. You are filled with envy and rage and bitterness and unforgiveness. You blame others for your sin, and you're too proud to even call it sin. You are never slow to speak, and you have a razor tongue that lashes and cuts with its criticism and sinful judgment. Your words do not impart grace. Instead, your mouth is a fountain of condemnation and guilt and obscene talk. You are a false prophet leading people astray. You mock your parents. You have no self-control. You are a betrayer who stirs up division and factions. You're a drunkard and a thief. You're an anxious coward. You do not trust me. You blaspheme against me. You are an unsubmissive wife. And you are a lazy, disengaged husband. You file for divorce and you crush the parable of my love for the church. You're a pimp and a drug dealer. You practice divination and worship demons. Pastor Rick continues, the list of your sins goes on and on and on. And I hate these things inside of you. I'm filled with disgust and indignation toward your sin consumes me. Now drink my cup. And Jesus does. He drinks for hours. He drinks down every drop of the scalding liquid of God's own hatred of sin mingled with his white-hot wrath against that sin. This is the Father's cup. Omnipotent hatred and anger for the sins of every generation, past, present, and future. Omnipotent wrath directed at the one naked man hanging on the cross. The Father can no longer look at his beloved Son. His heart's treasure, the mere image of himself, and he looks away. He looks away from Jesus, who stepped in, that all that would be counted against him for us in love. And in this moment, as he looks away from his son, this look away. It elicits a cry of the greatest grief ever known from the very depths of Jesus' soul. And Mark records that at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here, as C.J. Mahaney summarizes, This, this cry, this moment, this is Gethsemane realized. This is what Jesus looked into back in the garden and dreaded, which is what brought him to the earth. This is Gethsemane now realized, fully and finally experienced. He 
the perfectly righteous sufferer foreshadowed in Psalm 22, which he quotes here, has now absorbed the full brunt of God's wrath for our unrighteousness. And without severing the unity of the triune God in a way that defies our explanation, our ability to wrap our heads around, Jesus, the God-man, has looked into the eyes of his loving Father and found only the eyes of a wrathful judge staring back at him. He has borne away our alienation and separation from God by being so forsaken. In this moment, he's taken away everything that would separate us from God. He has been so rejected by his Father in order to atone for our very rejection of God. And he's done all this in amazing love for us. The traitors that we are, the faithless ones we still prove ourselves to be. He stepped in to take that on for us so that we wouldn't have to. And the bystanders watching this go down, hearing his cry, breaking the silence that he's been maintaining, hearing him crying out, Eloi, believe he's crying out for the prophet Elijah to return and deliver him from the cross. And quickly they fill a sponge with sour wine, which is the uh, ancient equivalent of Gatorade. (laughs) And they take it on a reed and they bring it up to his lips. They do this to sustain him in order to see what might happen. They want to wait and see, will Elijah come? (laughs) What's going to happen next? But here's the point. (laughs) After all this, Jesus, he has no need to wait for anything. He's done what he resolved to do in Gethsemane. After six hours upon that cross, he's done all that was needed to bring us back to the garden, into the presence of God. His work is done. He has not faltered. He has been faithful and obedient even unto death. And with his mouth wetted by that final drink, he gathers up all his remaining strength and he utters a loud cry. John says, he said, it is finished. And then he breathed his last. Having finished what he's come to do for people like us, he now lays down his life. And we'll see that his death it provokes a response both from God and man. First, the divine response to his death to help us understand what it all means. We see a divine response in verse 38 in the tearing of the veil. Mark writes that in that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In that moment that the temple of his body was destroyed, The Jerusalem temple, which could be seen, was with an eye shot from the hill that they stood upon. That temple, in that moment, was brought to an end. God's own hand reaching down from heaven, tearing the veil from top to bottom. It demonstrates that because of what Jesus has just done upon the cross, that no more sacrifices ever need to be offered for sin. That through the once and for all death of his son, we, we might come to pass through the veil into the holy of holy places, the very presence of God. And we might come, traitors though we were, to find life now before him. He's welcomed us in through the death 
of his son. Listen, the tearing of the veil in Mark 15, 2,000 years ago then, oh, it proves that Jesus' perfect sacrifice for our sins, it was received and it was accepted. Meaning that today, this morning, there is nothing else anyone must do to come to God other than to trust that Jesus' death was enough for them. That's true this morning. It's true for you if you've never yet received it. It is enough. God will welcome you in solely and totally and completely on the basis of what Jesus has done for you. That's the response of God to honor and to glorify that sacrifice of his son. And next, we come to the response of man. And as readers, we've beheld all these things in Mark with the eyes of faith. The incredible things that all the human characters complicit in the cross were blinded to through unbelief. But now, one of them. One of them begins to see. And, and what is the climactic moment of Mark's gospel? What we, the reader, have known from the beginning now burst forth from the lips of a Roman centurion who watched it from the foot of the cross all unfolding. So listen to what Mark writes as he says, and when the centurion who stood facing him, watching, beholding, seeing the king upon the cross, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. In light, in the light of the revelation that has come from the cross, this man he looked upon the crucified Jesus and said, he truly was the king. He beheld the testimony of his innocence in the way he suffered so valiantly without lashing out at those who were cursing him or cursing God in the process. The way in which he beheld the supernatural darkness covering the land, covering this man and understood something is happening here. Something divine and supernatural is being accomplished in the death of this man. He is no ordinary criminal. God is up to something here. The way in which he saw that his life wasn't taken from him. After just six hours on a cross, criminals could last for days. But the way in which he, after the darkness had lifted, laid his life down of his own volition, of his own accord. He gave it up to God in triumph as he cried out with that final breath. All this is racing through his mind and flooding into his heart, and it provokes him to confess with his lips that Jesus is the Son of God. And this brings us to the goal of Mark's entire gospel. At the beginning of the book, we heard that the gospel was the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in verse 1, chapter 1. And here now at the end of the book, in verse 39, on the lips of a human being, finally, we have a proper confession of Christ. And let's ask, let's call attention to, who's confessing him? Was it one of the religious officials? <laughs> was it a righteous person? <laughs> no, it was one of the very Roman soldiers complicit in his death. An unclean, sinful man sees Jesus and says he is Savior. And on his lips, the gospel message that we hold dear and stake our lives upon it goes forth from a sinful Gentile person. Christ has come for people like him and he's come for people like us. And the gospel resounds. And as we close, we see that the centurion wasn't the only one who was looking on. Mark tells us that across the way, in the distance, 
there were also women who were gazing on the scene. And what's important about them to note is that uh, we'll encounter them again next week because as they see what's happening in the cross, they also see Christ buried and they'll go to where he's buried and we'll pick up with them in chapter 16. But today, before moving on to the burial and before moving on to the resurrection, we want to close with our eyes along with them fixed upon the cross. And so as the centurion stood there right before Christ and gazed up, as they looked on from a distance, here's the question for you. When you look to the cross, what do you see? As you behold that man upon the cross, who is he to you? Right now, are you close to him like the centurion looking up and crying out? Are you at a distance like the women looking in? Are you maybe one of those who passed by on the road and shook your head in contempt and disgust at this Jesus? And listen, this morning, wherever you are, if you're hearing these words now, he invites you to see him as your savior, to draw near to his cross and receive for the first time or the thousandth time everything he's accomplished upon it. And so to the non-Christian hearing these words this morning, you can, in this very moment, respond and receive the full forgiveness of what he did in those moments for all your sins, past, present, and future, and enter into life with God. And to the Christian, to the believer, to the member of Cross of Grace Church, oh, we can receive his grace afresh today. And we can recenter our lives upon his cross and live with a renewed confidence that we have indeed been forgiven and that every grace that we need for the entirety of our lives has in this moment been purchased and secured. And we can live out of the assurance of our salvation. We can live out of the strength that this supplies to us. Church, would we behold the King who bore our sin to the glory of his name in the celebration of our souls? Let's pray.